0: welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Cruise of the Hippocampus by Alfred Loomis and we're on chapter 2. Chapter 2 Hippocampus Sees It Through. Prompted by the kindliest feelings in the world, the unofficial board of relatives and friends of the tribe of Hippocampi warned us of adverse weather conditions along every stretch of the 3,000 mile run to Panama except that in which she received her baptism. Consequently, when the start was made from New York, the outer entrance to the Delaware River meant nothing to us. Now it marks a spot where the crew of the seagoing 28-foot yawl learned that she will take any zephyr that travels from here to there at no greater velocity than 75 miles an hour. Less than two days out of New York, we bumped into a gale that sent the other small fry scooting for safety to Atlantic City, Cape May and the Delaware breakwater, and started our wherry on an uncharted cruise of its own, but we held our course and weathered it in Manowar style. When it comes to sailing in light airs or whole gales, the hippo is there. At the last writing less than a month ago, Hippocampus was on dry land at New Rochelle, with the swish of paintbrushes filling the April atmosphere. But before the full moon brought its spring tides, she was ready for the water, and on April 24th, slid into her element with something closely resembling a sigh of relief. Inspection revealed that except for a few open cocks and drain plugs in various parts of the engine's anatomy, she was tight. These valves I had neglected to close, and they merrily filled the bilge while we busied ourselves on deck. After the steady drip of water had discovered them to us, however, the accumulation was pumped out, and her keel has remained virtually dry except on the night of the storm to which we are coming by degrees." One other little oversight nearly marred the launching. Just after I had let go the anchor, the first and second mates who were in a skiff at the business end of the tow line called my attention to an imposing sign which tardily informed us that we were over a cable crossing and were requested not to anchor. To remember everything all at once is difficult for me, and it was much more good luck than intelligence that saved me from fouling the cable. But no harm was done. And under the direction of Al Chambers, the second in command and the first in sailing knowledge, we sorted out the running rigging and got the blocks and lines in place. For the next few days we were favoured by good weather which permitted us to clear up the odds and ends, but on the sailing date, Thursday the 28th, so many were the pieces of equipment still to be collected from various sources that we were unready to start. We should have got underway the next day if it hadn't been Friday and if the rain hadn't prevented the taking of pictures and Saturday saw us still lying at Port Washington, to which we had put from my home port of Huntington. As the preceding night was the first on which the whole crew had slept aboard, this becomes a propitious moment for introducing them. John Albert Chambers, an ex-sub-chaser man and junior lieutenant in the reserve, may be recognised in the accompanying pictures by the busy expression on his face. He comes from Salem, Massachusetts, where they sail boats the day after leaving the cradle, and what he doesn't know about small boat handling has yet to be discovered. Under the direction of George Le Sauvage, friend of all sub-chaser men in the World War, he saved New York from the submarines, and after that went across as far as the Azores, and with the conclusion of festivities, returned to the West Indies to give the Virgin Islands and Islanders a treat. Three years of service in the SCs endowed him with a roving foot, and now he is the happiest when we are underway. Paul Squibb, second mate, engine man and seagoing commissary extraordinaire, has done all his boating in the Bay of Fundy and is only thoroughly contented when the tide is battling with the wind and lifting the waves higher than the main truck. When a gale tries to yank the sticks out of the boat and the combers rake her fore and aft, Squibb lends his oilers to chambers and stays below, reading aloud information about lights and boys and catching the silverware on its way from the galley to the bilge. Just one thing about nautical life perplexes Squibb, he can't savvy the barometer. Although he has studied it from every angle, and made due allowances for the frailty of man-made instruments, he still believes that it is affected by the law of storms. But we are not with him. We saw it fall from 29.95 to 29.59 and bring a nor'easter, then rise again to 29.78 and bring another, remain stationary for 24 hours and fetch up a third. And we know that it is absolutely lawless. Introductions having been accomplished, we find all hands at their mooring stations off the Manhasset Yacht Club. Getting under way on the morning of Saturday, April twenty ninth, we sailed out of the bay with a fair wind and down the sound of Throg's Neck, where the breeze died away and the little two cylinder Palmer got busy. The hour of departure had been calculated for a rendezvous with Rosie, the sea going photographer, in his cruiser Photo. And it was anything but favourable for a quick run down the East River. But, bucking ahead tide, we slowly forged ahead and by two in the afternoon were secured at the 23rd Street station of the New York Yacht Club. There, in a damp and dismal rain which had held off until the pictures were taken, we said goodbye to ex-sub-chaser men of assorted sizes and to other friends and relatives and received the parting blessings of numerous kind-hearted citizens. These blessings took the very tangible form of items of ship's equipment and included the following valuable articles. One two-burner stove with enough canned fuel to keep us in fried eggs for a month of Sundays. One mechanical stethoscope for testing the heart action of the motor. One boat cushion which has already lightened the hours of duty at the tiller, but which, be it hoped, may never exercise its actual life-saving function, two seven-foot ash oars which at present repose in the hold, mourning the lost wherry, and a mate's sextant. This princely bon voyage present is a ten-second instrument that thrills the hand that holds it. With its full equipment of telescopes, it promises to give me some of the happiest moments of the cruise. For, when all is said and done, the best part of sailing or motorboating is deep-sea navigation." with every square inch of stowage room filled until the rotund sides of the little hippopotamus seemed to bulge still farther, and with a rainproof photographer standing by to catch a quartering view of us, we shoved off from the wharf at 5.55am and headed down the bay under power. Such wind as there was was contrary, but as the glass hadn't been doing much of anything for several hours, we figured on the unheralded approach of a nor'easter. So when we had passed through the Narrows, we headed for Gravesend Bay to lie for the night in the lee of Bensonhurst, of blessed memory. In the morning, the wind was blowing stiffly from the expected quarter, bringing with it a drenching downpour of rain, and the day seemed inauspicious for a cruise that would take us through the tropics in the full drip of the rainy season. Wherefore, we decided to devote Sunday to prayerful consideration of the last-minute details which had been neglected, and first and foremost hauled into Andy's gas dock on Ulmer Park to replenish our various tanks. In making the landing, the wind caught our bow at about the time the ship had more sternway than she could comfortably carry, and we shivered the mizzen boom on the unyielding exterior of a 12-inch pile. Right away, Al Chambers, but here let me interpolate a word about the duplication of Al's aboard ship. At first it was thought that when Squibb said, hey Al, There would be confusion as to the identity of the Al intended. The difficulty has since removed itself, however, for when he says, Al, get your chow, I know he means me, and when it is, Al, bear a hand here, I guess he means chambers. So that is that, as the novelists are given to saying. After the carrying away of the mizzen boom, Al decided not to go ashore for a required suit of oilers, and collectively, we put in the day rigging a new spa staging a foraging expedition to the marine basin where chambers and i had mowed down countless handrail stanchions in the early days of the war we met a person in authority who directed us to the broken radio mast of a sub chaser and told us to take it when he wasn't looking useless for its intended purpose this stick of knotless oregon pine was ideal for us and with andy wielding the draw knife and plane while we looked on and marveled We soon had a new boom that beats perfection itself. Then we rigged it and shipped it, and at five of a wintry afternoon, called it a day. Monday morning, the 2nd of May, offered every inducement for an early start. But sleep got the better of us, and it was seven o'clock before we cast off from the dock of the hospitable Anderson, and stood down the bay under sail and power. Arrived in Ambrose Channel, we shut off the motor, and cutting across to Gedney Channel, the northwest wind died a lingering death and we slatted about in the swell from the preceding day's blow. Whereupon the companionway ladder was again moved aside to give access to the little ten-horsepower mill and we chugged off for Scotland light vessel to take our departure for the long journey. The wind, remaining virtually dormant, we motored down the Jersey coast for a matter of three hours with the jib and jigger just filling and then a gentle southerly breeze sprang up and we hoisted the mainsail and shut off the power. Alternately reaching in toward the coast and beating out to sea, we tacked about all the afternoon, evening and night, and in the morning, with barginet light slightly abaft the beam, had made less than 50 miles for the day's run. But Squibb and I had acquired a little experience in handling the ship under sail, and Chambers was not dissatisfied with our progress. Day dawned clear, but the sky was almost immediately overcast with a thin pall of clouds that boded no good for the next 24 hours' run. Then, although the wind hauled gradually to eastward, the clouds burned off and we doffed a few sweaters and prepared to enjoy life on the ocean wave. The little patent log which followed Typhoon on Bill Nutting's carefree excursion to the Cow's Regatta and which had been lent us for our coastal voyage settled down to business and clocked us off at five knots Thereby establishing the first part of our prediction that Hippo is slow but sure. Atlantic City, Ocean City, and a few more of the Jersey coast resorts were gradually brought abeam beam and receded to the most attractive bearing, that of the starboard quarter. And at sundown we were abreast of Hereford Inlet Light, about four miles to leeward of us. That sunset is the one of all others that I'll always remember. Having nothing about it to delight the eye of a turner, it was calculated solely to trouble the mind of a navigator. At that, it was a sunset only by conventional application of the word, since the sun never showed his face after he had sunk below an angle of twenty degrees. But he had cast an abortive rainbow in the eastern sky and tinged the clouds to a dull bluish hue that reminded me of the sea storms I have ever read about. Nimbus clouds scudded across the sky in two directions and rolled themselves into Mare's tails, and slowly the wind swung into the northeast quadrant and gained in vigour. Just before dark, we headed into it and doused the mainsail. Then, thanks to Chalmers' foresight, we used the ends of the backstay sheets, the mainsheet and a stray line or so to quadruple-lash the boom, and he generally saw to it that everything was snugged down for the night. For one sufficient reason or another, I made no contemporaneous entries in the ship's log. But it was somewhere around nine o'clock when we sighted McCry's Shoal Lighted Boy off Cape May, and laid a westerly course for it. The breeze was then blowing about five in the Beaufort scale, and the wherry, towing at the end of a two-and-a-half-inch painter, was having a merry time. Alternately, it sagged back on the line and then charged down at us from the peak of a wave, and when it had once missed our counter by inches, we lengthened its scope to 40 feet to avoid a rear-end collision. At 10.05, we brought our boy a beam and headed away on a south-by-east course for Fenwick Island Shoals Light Vessel, and somewhere between that moment and the next, Chambers called down the hatch that the wherry had gone adrift. Even at that early hour, the blackness of the night and the condition of the sea were such that search for it was useless. Things were getting pretty thick. Although we had already shaped our course for the light vessel, I had remained below studying the entrance to Delaware Breakwater Harbour, and concluding that with an ebb tide and half a gale, I didn't like the looks of it. The loss of the tender now decided me that the night called for plenty of sea room, and with Owls and Paul's concurrence we continued on our way. I may be hopelessly wrong in my opinion, but I believe that the difference between riding out a storm and scurrying for a strange harbour in the dead of night is just this. When you're getting a severe drubbing off soundings, the worst has yet to happen. But when you miss the entrance to a harbour and find yourself in the breakers, your cup of misfortune is full and running over. So taking the wind and water heavily from a little abaft the port beam, we held our course for the light vessel 25 miles distant. The wind came without gusts, but with an ever-increasing strength, and by 10.30, I mentally put it down for 7 in the Beaufort scale. Then, as the half-hours dragged by, I raised the ante one by one, and at the height of the storm, figured that we were receiving all that a 65-mile blow had to offer us. But the ship was taking it gamely, and travelling. When you log off seven knots under jib and jigger, displaying but little more than a third of your total sail area, you may say that the wind is blowing and that you are taking full advantage of it. And so we travelled until the tiller trembled under the rush of water past the rudder, and the boom vibrated from the transmitted strain of the wind in the jib, and we dipped our lee rail under and took solid water, alternately over bow and port quarter, until the cockpit scuppers failed to carry off the accumulated inflow of water, and the light of the binnacle wedged in a corner of the cockpit was extinguished. always we felt confidence in the ability of the hippocampus to stand up under her punishment not always did we have this feeling of confidence in ourselves and when two hours before we were supposed to pick up fenwick light vessel we saw a gleam on our starboard bow we momentarily thought that we had erred in the course the unwelcome light showed itself when we were crossing the south end of five fathom bank and the rollers were breaking over themselves until the whole sea was a smother of phosphorescence, and, for a time, we thought ourselves to be in the breakers. At this juncture, we started the palmer, which, despite greasy flywheel and dampened spark plugs, kicked off with accustomed celerity, and I let it idle until we had again become sure of our position. This assurance was given us by indirection, when a green starboard light showed flanking the white light and we made it out to be a tug bound for the Delaware River, with but one range light burning. So incessant and violent was our motion that the approaching light had the fixity of a shore beacon. Our own running lights had long since given up the ghost, and we had made no attempt to keep them burning. The height of the evening's performance came when Chalmers going below for a smoke was followed down the companionway by the fringe of a coma which extinguished the acetylene gaslight. Both before and after that happening, the binnacle light puffed out, and continually until dawn, spray slopped down the half-open hatchway until the bilge and cabin deck were an agitated pool of turbid water. Squib wedging himself in place on a pile of saturated cushions and remaining below because we were minus a suit of oilers and the need for charmers on deck was great, established for himself the reputation of sea-going sailor. To Chalmers belongs the credit of pulling us through a nasty situation and to squib the storm-proof stomach. Mine is equal to any emergency on deck, but it does have its limits, and I kept the topside. At a little before two, we sighted Fenwick Lightship dead ahead and felt a load lift itself from our shoulders. The wind still blew hard, being now accompanied by ominous periods of calm, and the spray still drove through our oilers but we knew that upon sticking it out for only one hour more we could head off on a south by west course and take the sea at a better angle. At 2.50 our leeway carrying us down so that we were able to round the light ship we brought it a beam on the port hand and squared away on the new course. In a lull a few minutes later the little ship lost steerage way and jibed on the reopening of hostilities. Having the tiller at the time I thought that I had committed a nautical faux pas which would be fatal. But the spars, sails and rigging stood the strain, and the doughty sailing master of our crew brought her about on the proper tack, without difficulty. From then on until dawn the wind continued stiff, but at sunrise it slacked off in strength and by 8am we were tumbling about in what might have been a flat calm, if by any stretch of the imagination the mountainous waves could be termed flat. At any rate, there was not enough air to keep the sails filled as we rolled and again the motor was started. Squibb had taken the morning watch while Chalmers and I indulged our passion for sleep, and so ably did he heed my injunction not to make anything to westward of the course that at eight bells, when I came on deck, we were twenty miles from anywhere. Laying a course in the general direction of North America, we presently picked up Winter Quarter Shoal Boy, and there altered to make the bell marking the southern end of Blackfish Bank. Meanwhile, Assateague-like had showed above the horizon and we welcomed the thought of hot chow and rest in the anchorage at its base. Still under power, but with a repetition of the preceding days easterly springing up to fill the jib and jigger, we kept on our way until at 1.10 in the afternoon of Wednesday we lowered sail at the entrance to the anchorage. From there it was a run of a few minutes to a quiet mooring at the new plant of the Chincoteague Fish Oils Company, where we secured and received a cordial greeting from the manager. Ericsson is a sea-going Swede of varied experience who, having heard our story, corroborated our modest claim of a 65 mile breeze and said, you boys band salty. I know it when I've been seeing you picking your way in between the shoals and your boat band salty too. When Ericsson said this, we felt that it was praise indeed. That night we lay in and the southeast wind only vaguely disturbed our slumbers. Nor were we bothered the next night, when another nor'easter, accompanying a mendaciously rising glass, swept across the anchorage and bobbed first our bowsprit and then our bumpkin under. Friday, the sea still tumbled about outside and roared on the beach of Assateague, and the sky remained troubled, and on Saturday, when conditions for sailing seemed ideal, the mouth of the windbag closed and not enough air stirred to flutter our S.C. pennant at the main. But Sunday morning, a fine sailing breeze from the nor'west greeted us as we rolled out of our bunks, and with a great stir of activity, we bolted one of Squibb's hasty breakfasts, singled our lines, started the motor, cast off and headed for sea. If other amateur mariners put in to Assateague Anchorage and are accorded half the cordiality that we receive from all hands at the fish plant, they will look back on their sojourn there as a most pleasant one. We occupied our time between showers, airing bedding and clothes, my clean whites having been on the lee side in the storm will never be the same again, and in turning sheets and halyards to lengthen the life of them. Rounding fishing point and taking our departure from the red and black spar marking a two-fathom spot at the entrance, we set all sail, shut off the power, and ran free under the impulse of a fine sailing breeze. Looking back we saw how inaccurate is the lighted range supposed to mark the best water into the anchorage, and I made a note in the log to warn seafarers entering at night to give a wide berth to the light on that point. The spit has gradually crept northward until the light which formerly marked the best water now lures the stranger into an overland expedition. All that day we had perfect conditions for sailing, the sea being smooth with an offshore wind and I employed the morning brushing up on my navigation. Working two St. Hilaire sights from my Brandis sextant and catching the sun on the meridian at noon, I was able to check the accuracy of the instrument by objects on shore. It checked. By sundown, when we were bringing Cape Charles a beam, we had logged 50 miles and were all set for a quick run up the Elizabeth River and a full day ashore in Norfolk. But the wind passed quietly out, and in the succeeding 12 hours we made less than 20 miles. Then, Monday morning, having breakfasted and put the ship in harbour trim, a process involving the stole of wet shoes, trousers, shirts and miscellany, we'd started the motor and proceeded to a quiet mooring in The Hague. During our short stay here, automobilists easing along Mowbray Arch have exclaimed, oh, there she is, and pedestrians have done us the honour of coming aboard to inspect. As I started to write this, a big Navy plane, which had flown from New York in about the time it took us to cover the last ten miles under power, flew overhead, and one of her observers leaned over the side to semaphore, good luck to us. We have been dined, and I almost say wined, by the most hospitable strangers, and now, being freshly provisioned and fueled, we are preparing to get underway for Charleston, with possible stops for breath at Beaufort, Southport or wherever we catch the next drubbing from Father Neptune. Little hooker will stand it. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up to the mates level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea get into the nitty-gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer so if any of that sounds interesting go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community but that's all for today So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.